theme from the movie Major League. Yes, indeed. Hi, everybody. Check Your Brain Podcast. Tony Mazur here. Underrated theme song. Very 80s, but upbeat, and I don't hear it enough when I go to the ballpark. We are going to go to the ballpark, but we're not talking about the 1989 Indians under under the ownership of Rachel Phelps. And general manager, what was his name, Charlie Donovan or something, and Lou Brown, the manager. No, we're going to actually go back to a real team from 1974 for this one and talk about the 1974 Indians. We get into the whole thing with Jim Clark, who's the author of the book Rally Round Cleveland, about the 1974 Indians. What's so great about the 1974 team? Like, what? What is it? What is so great about them? They finished 77-85 and 85 on the season. Ken Aspromonte was the manager. You had a couple of decent names that were a part of it, but why would you write a book about the 1974 team? Who cares? Well, a lot of people should care because if it wasn't for that team and the excitement that was going on where it just seemed like every night it was kind of like a cardiac kids style of season if it wasn't for that 1974 team you don't have guys like Kenny Lofton and Manny Ramirez and Jim Tomey there is no team there is no there's no Joe Carter there's no major league if it wasn't for the 74 Cleveland Indians so even though the record looks pretty mediocre to subpar you still had guys like uh well frank robinson was a part of the team eventually and oscar gamble and gaylord perry and jim perry charlie spikes these are names that kind of just start jumping out at you jim clark writes it in his book about this season and the excitement and listening to the games on the radio and it's kind of a cautionary tale for a lot of people who think that their franchise, no matter where you're listening to this, whether you're from the Cleveland area, where I know it sounds like a very localized podcast, but this is more so a a, a cautionary tale for people in other franchises and te- fans of those franchises that might be on the move. Just because you think your team has, and it's been there for 100 years, 50 years, 75 years, doesn't mean they can't just up and leave might be your favorite team. You might be just getting into the Tampa Bay Rays and they decide to move them to Montreal next year. You don't know. You don't know. And you're just getting into them and it just really takes something out of you. But there were a lot of threats the Indians and several other teams were to moving. And if it wasn't for some of those seasons to keep them in there and the certain players and moments, including 10 Cent Beer Night, and we talk a lot about 10 Cent Beer Night, uh, at Cleveland Stadium that happened on June 4th of 1974 and what happened and the fact that there were other 10-cent beer nights before and after it that went without a hitch. So why did Cleveland? Why, why do we have to mess things up here in this town? I don't know. I don't get it. But we talk a little bit about that here on this podcast with Jim Clark. And I'm putting this out uh, just a week, uh, a couple of days after we recorded this. Uh, but uh, if you are listening to this on Patreon, you got it immediately. So make sure you subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer for five bucks a month. You get four podcasts a week. If you just subscribe for free on iTunes and Apple and Spotify, you get about four podcasts a month. You get four a week from me for five bucks. That's a pretty darn good deal. So again, patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. You get extra check your brain content just for five dollars. Pretty good deal, if you ask me. 
But if you have a couple extra bucks, go buy Jim's book. It's called Rally Round Cleveland on the 1974 Indians. Here he is. He's the play-by-play guy for the Akron Rubber Ducks right now and has been so for a while. Give it up for Jim Clark. There's a red moon rising on the Cuyahoga River rolling into Cleveland to the lake Hello, folks. Tony Mazur here, and I am talking to Jim Clark right now. And Jim Clark is the play-by-play man, longtime play-by-play man for the Akron whatever baseball team, whether it was the Arrows, the Canton. Were you with the Canton Akron Indians? I know you're with the Rubber Ducks now. Was that was that uh, you were around with the Canton Akron Indians back then too? Yes, starting in 1990. Yeah, uh, the uh, the old Thurman Munson Stadium, a stadium that if if you went there today, you would think that stadium was built in like the 20s or 30s, and it was actually built in the late 80s. And it looks exactly the same today as it did then. So they got a brand new scoreboard. The field's great. Kent McKinley plays there. Um, it, it looks pretty good, but it's it's still the human erector set. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a definitely an old school park, but it's not that old school. But uh, Jim Clark, uh, longtime voice of uh, the the Akron AA teams, those three teams I mentioned there, the the Indians, the Rubber Ducks, and the Arrows. And he uh, just a couple of years ago came out with a book. It's called Rally Round Cleveland. Now the reason I'm having him on because I I do want to. I don't want to bury the lead too much talking about today, June 4th being the anniversary of the 10 cent beer night, but that you're talking about the 1974 season for the Indians, a team that finished below 500 once again, here we go again. But in your book, and I didn't realize this until I read your book, how special that team was in the fact that what if they if they finished worse than where they were you may not we may not be talking about Albert Bell we may not be talking about Francisco Lindor or Grady Sizemore or anybody who came from the because the team might have moved either the next year or a couple of years later well, I really thought that you know the attendance and I and I really wrote to read the book because of really three main seasons in 71 they drew 591,000 in 72 659,000 in 73, just 605,000 fans. And I, my thought always was, if that would have continued, if they would have had one more year, maybe two like that, even Nick Maletti may have had to move that club. Um, Rush Schneider wrote an article in The Plain Dealer, which was really buried on the third or fourth page right before the 74 season opened. And he called it a critical year. And I and I and I didn't find that article until after I wrote my book. I, I don't know how I missed it recently in the PD, but he likened it to when they almost lost him in '65 before they traded for Calabito. You know, this is just as critical now as it was then. We have young players. If you don't get out and watch them now, this team could move because Washington lost their team in '71 to Texas. Canada wanted baseball. New Orleans wanted baseball. Florida wanted baseball. And who come, why not come pick on the team that can't support their franchise? They had not drawn over a million since 1959. They almost did in 65, but it saved the franchise. You know, they almost lost them to New Orleans for 40 games. And Nick Maletti said he tore that deal up right away. 
because that will kill the franchise. We play 35 or 40 games in New Orleans. So 74 calmed those, calmed those stormy waters because they were really a good ball club. The last three weeks killed their season. They were only five and a half games out or four and a half games out on Labor Day. The same as the 48 Indians, their last championship team. It were, it's it's truly incredible. And before we get into like digging into the season and what it truly made special, you mentioned about the teams that had almost moved. And to this day in 2021, we still see the Cleveland Indians playing at the corner, corner of Carnegie and Ontario. But leading up to that, you didn't know where the franchise was going. And this was a time in the 1970s where there was a lot of movement and possibilities of splitting your your teams. For example, in Ohio, we had the Ohio Royals where you would you would see Oscar Robertson and some of these guys play in Cleveland and Columbus and yep. Cincinnati. You had the Kansas City Omaha Kings in basketball. You had regional teams. The, the teams were moving out of the – uh, downtown areas, the Scheib Parks, the Connie Mack Stadiums, the Baker Bowls, the and, and moving into more, whether it's still in the city or way outside the city, like a Pontiac or a Richfield, Ohio. And you were seeing more regional looks uh, at teams and, and sporting events. And so I, I put together a list of these um, teams that almost moved and how that would have changed sports history. So if you, if you don't mind, I have a bunch of these. So the, the St. Louis Browns almost moved to Milwaukee, which means then you wouldn't have had the Milwaukee Braves and the Milwaukee Bucks and every or uh, Milwaukee Brewers eventually. The Senators in the late 50s were one of the teams that they were going to relocate to Los Angeles or San Francisco before the Giants and Dodgers went out there. The Giants almost – you're, you're going to see the Giants on this list a lot too. Giants almost moved to Minnesota in the late – 50s as well. The A's, when they were moving out of Philadelphia, was it going to be Kansas City? There was Los Angeles, Dallas, Atlanta, San Diego, New Orleans, Phoenix. The White Sox almost moved a bunch of times too out of the old Comiskey Park. Milwaukee was a possibility or Seattle. Um, the Padres, after a couple of years, really not drawing anything and not doing much, were going to move to Washington. The Giants again, 1976, almost moved to Toronto before the Blue Jays. White Sox almost moved to Tampa Bay. The Giants almost moved to Tampa Bay it, right before they got Barry Bonds. The Twins almost moved to Charlotte, I guess, in the late 90s. And then, of course, there was the Expos that there was a possibility they would move to Puerto Rico, Monterey, Mexico, uh, the, the, the Newport News, Norfolk, Virginia area. And eventually they did move, but they moved to Washington. So, in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, it was not uncommon for teams that, even if they were historic teams, that they could possibly be on the move. When you're not drawing, at some point you're forced to drastic measures. They thought the Indians were gone in 64, right when the season ended. Gabe Paul thought he was taking them to either Seattle or Dallas. Those two cities thought they had them signed, sealed, and delivered, and the city came through and signed a lease in Sabre. They were so close to leaving. Hal Levowitz of the PD started a huge campaign with all the city's founding fathers at that time, more or less, to save the franchise. And that list is impressive because who would have thought the Giants so many times, the White Sox, all those teams could have left their cities and stadiums. 
Yeah, it's hard to believe that now, and especially with the success the Giants have had the last almost since 2010, and even before then, they went to a World Series in 02. They had the Barry Bonds years and everything. But yeah, the Giants. And I talked to a guy named Lincoln Mitchell about this because he wrote a book on the Giants from that period of where they almost moved to Toronto all the way to when they did sign Barry Bonds. And you basically had a couple of years. You had Joe Morgan's big home run, and you had the 1989, well, 87 with Jeffrey Leonard and 89 with Kevin Mitchell and Will Clark. But for the most part, it, it, to, to think that the Giants would have played anywhere besides Candlestick at the time and then now where they're at at, I believe it's called Oracle Park now. Um, but to think of the Giants moving out of San Francisco, well, it was not unheard of. And these these certain towns that just kept coming up, like you mentioned, that Tampa Bay in the 90s, in the 70s, it was, could you go to Toronto? Seattle had been wanting a team for a long time. Seattle or Portland around that area. And New Orleans, who still to this day has not had a Major League Baseball team, but even when that there's that possibility of, hey, will a team possibly move? New Orleans is always in that top five of, of locations. I, but I, I, I guess they just didn't, <laughs> they weren't able to court a team. And in fact, I think they even lost a team, a AAA team recently. New Orleans still scares me, but there's good news on our front because I've been worried about the Indians the last five or six years, despite all the winning. They're always in the bottom 10 in attendance. This is despite having American League's best record under Terry Francona. They've been 20 or below in attendance the last five or six years. But thank heavens, it looks like the lease will be signed in a couple of weeks to keep the team in this to keep the team in Cleveland in that ballpark. Because I still get concerned that when you're drawing like the Indians draw 20th or worse, when you're winning, think what happens when you have a year when you win 77 games or 75 games. And then with Brown's fever exploding, who thinks about baseball if you're not in a race from July on? But hopefully they'll get that lease signed and that talk will not creep in again about relocation. Because I, that still concerns me that they can't draw when they're winning. Nothing like the 90s, not even close. They can't draw while they're winning. That really concerns me. Yeah, I think that was, uh, and there there have been a lot of rumors about Nashville because Nashville is a town that I've been going yes. to Nashville my whole life. So b all the way from the late '80s, early '90s, and Nashville was just kind of a a dusty, you know, it was like it was old school town. And then it wasn't until about 20 years ago that they really upped it to where it's basically almost like Las Vegas East. So the population of Nashville is exploding, and they're wanting a, a possible team. They have a Triple A team, but could they could that be the possibility and there were a lot of those rumors the last couple of years that if they're not going to get if the Indians are not going to draw and you have ownership that whether people feel they're not putting enough effort into the team and putting enough money and resources into keeping something along those lines and a guy like a Francisco Lindor if if there wasn't even a thought to re-signing him because he wouldn't they wouldn't be able to agree a lot of people are like I wouldn't be surprised if this team leaves well the Dolans I, I think are very good people. You know, they, they take a hard rap and I think it's always a 50, 50 thing because they've always gone out around trading deadline time. They've tried to acquire pieces to win, to win a pennant and win a world series. They've done it every year. And yet still people still holler about, Oh, they lost CC. They lost Tommy. They lost this guy. They lost that guy. But 
they produce consecutive winning seasons and they will never catch a break. They'll never catch a break until they win a world series. Yeah. And I don't think they want to be in the same conversation as Art Modell and say, me taking the Browns out, having them taking the Indians. Out. I don't think they would ever do it, but you also, you know, you got to make some money somehow. It's not just a toy. You have to make some money and people need to get out there and watch that club. Yeah, and and the one thing about when you think of the Indians, a, a team that, because I, I look, I always look to trends in other sports and other towns. Where, for example, just two hours to the west of us or to the east of us is Pittsburgh, and traditionally it's Steelers, then it's Penguins, and then way far down the list is the Pirates. And even when they were competitive in the Jim Leland years with Bonds and Bonilla and Van Slyke. Yeah, you were getting some excitement there, but as soon as soon as Bonds leaves and as soon as Bonilla leaves and the team kind of broke up, you didn't see anybody at that ballpark the rest of the time they were at Three Rivers. Uh, but then there's other cases in other towns where St. Louis and, and Cincinnati, the baseball team draws more than the football team does. In fact, St. Louis lost a football team uh, yep. because of it, uh, because of lack of fan support, but they're baseball towns. In Cleveland... In the 90s, and by the way, I always like to point this out for people when they talk about, well, the reason the Indians drew so well in the 90s was because there were no Browns. But understand, they were good before we knew the Browns were leaving. The 90, We didn't know the Browns were leaving until after the 1995 World Series. So they were drawing and there was a lot of excitement. It was more so the revitalization of downtown with Gundarina uh, and Jacobs Field and downtown Cleveland, people were going to the flats and people were coming back to the city, a city that had been left for dead for the last 20, 25 years, maybe longer. And then you combine that they had a winning club with all those other ingredients, and you're exactly right. It wasn't just the Browns. The winning combination, all that happened with the new ballpark, the flats, the whole city landscape it really exploded. Now, would they have drawn as well if the Browns had been there winning? I think they still would have. Um, the economy was seemed fine then. I think they would have drawn. But, you know, now I, I just – I think you, you talked you talk about your pecking order. I still think it's Browns, Indians, Cavs. But, you know, for a while I, I, I can remember vividly, and I can't say who told me this, but when LeBron was leaving the first time, a guy in the Indians organization goes, gosh, you know, he goes, you, you know, I love Cleveland. He goes, but if that guy stays, it's always going to be Browns. He goes, I'm afraid it'll be Browns, Cavs, Indians. He goes, we'll be way down the list unless we really win, win, and win big. They were secretly hoping then that the guy would go <laughs> and get them out of that spot of being the third tier. Yeah. Yeah, and and that was what's interesting about that was even in the because I remember in the '90s and I'm, I'm I'm my early to mid 30s, so I was kind of it was in my youth when the Browns were gone, and but even growing up there were a lot of opportunities where I could have seen a Browns game, but couldn't but didn't have the possibility because they were blacked out locally because of that massive stadium. So when like if three seats weren't filled at the old stadium on Brown's game day, they were blacking it out locally and I'm watching the Vikings play the dolphins or something. So 
when the Indians ended up getting good, I think a lot of that played into the fact that they had a new stadium, it was a shiny new object, and people were returning to downtown. Because you had the Richfield Coliseum, which was, a, for if you lived in the Cleveland suburbs, was you know, 25, 30 minutes away for some people. Uh, it was nice if you lived in Akron or Medina or something, but for the most part, a lot of people wanted to go, uh, didn't want to drive all the way into downtown Cleveland unless they had a good reason to. Well, the LeBron years they did, in the 90s they did, but, you know, going back and, and getting back to your book and getting back to the teams of the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, there really was just one of those. I think Tom Hamilton made the joke where they said, "What time does the game start?" And he says, "Well, what time can you get here?" Oh, exactly. Um, you know, you could. They the stadium was always a problem for them because you're right. You, you never had a presale. You were you all, you you had those walk up flash crowds. But when there was big series, I can remember a series in '76 with the Yankees where they drew sixty five thousand or more every game for four games. And you had 71 night. It was the Yankees in July. They were second place, hanging around, making some noise. And you would have those big, huge crowds, which the place looked beautiful then. But, you know, normally, if you're not winning, it's five to 10,000 in a place that held, for that time for baseball, 77,000. And it, it just didn't look good. But, you know, people forget that there were about 45,000 really good seats for baseball in that ballpark. And people forget that somebody, oh, they had the girders and the poles. There were some really good seats for baseball in that park. They get lost in all the the things they said would say bad about the stadium. I love the place. I grew up in that ballpark. And in 74, when they finally drew a million again, and you had five or six crowds over 40,000, when you're in first place or second place or third place, for two months during the summer, the excitement, you couldn't wait to see what would happen next. Of course, beer night magnifies it all and takes away some of the other great things that happened, <laughs> like Dick Bosman's no-hitter, which was just unbelievable. But it was a year that, you know, I, I still will always think, and they may never tell me this, that if it would have continued in that downward spiral of 700,000 fans, how many more years could they have taken that and not move that franchise. Yeah, the 74 team, you start looking at some of these names uh, that and for people who might be listening to this outside of Cleveland but you're you know you're a fan of other teams. I mean, these are names that you just that just start popping up everywhere. Charlie Spikes, Oscar Gamble, Dave Duncan, George Hendrick, uh, Gaylord Perry, Jim Perry, as you mentioned, Do Dick No-Hit Bosman. And, of course, uh, and we'll, we'll get to kind of how eventually how the team didn't really gel as much towards the end of the season, but Frank Robinson was a huge name as well. But uh, some of those names, and, and it was a talented roster, had some young guys, but had some key veterans. And, it, it, and like you said about drawing that excitement, there's nothing quite like that. Like it was like the the '94 season at Jacobs Field. That after you got over the fact that there's a new stadium, there's also a pretty good young ball ball club who's playing. And same with uh, the when the Cavaliers, when LeBron came on board, was hey they've got a pretty good ball club. Let's go see this team. Uh, and, and even the Browns of you know 2018, there was that excitement that was building, and there was something that was was going to happen. Unfortunately, except for all the other examples, 
that 74 team didn't really bear the fruit that I think a lot of people really expected coming off of that season. You know, if it's funny when Gaylord Perry wins his 15 consecutive games, I always wondered if he would have kept that streak going because he had a real tailspin after that, but the club stayed afloat despite Gaylord's spiral for probably a month. You wonder, I mean, I'm a big what if guy with this. What if Gaylord doesn't, if Gaylord wins that game in Oakland and doesn't have a spiral downhill and they stay in the real thick of it because they, they felt they needed a bat when September came. And I mean, they still were right there when Frank came, it kind of threw it off kilter. George Hendrick was a problem all year long with Ken Aspermani. Great talent, but they called him Lonesome George. I'm sure Gaylord called him Lazy George. And the, and and there were issues. And they thought maybe Robbie could help bring along George Hendrick, also give him a veteran bat. And then, of course, he had a blow up with Gaylord. And it just, as late Joe Tate would tell me, it crashed and burned in the final three and a half weeks, which yeah. was unfortunate because they had built so many great things. I can still, I can still remember the weekend series when Boston threw his no-hitter. You had a Thursday night game with with Gaylord winning, drawing 40,000. Bosman, oh, no, losing that night. He lost that night. Yeah, he lost that night, I believe. They lost Thursday night to Catfish Hunt Day, and they drew 40,000. Friday night is Bosman's no-no, drawing another good crowd of 25,000. Saturday, they win 10-9 on National TV Game of the Week on NBC they draw 25,000 old timers day on Sunday, 40,000. You're thinking, man, people be actually begin to think this is the place to be right now. And they were showing that throughout the summer. Yeah. And Gaylord Perry, the way I look at it, because again, using another example outside of baseball, the Cavaliers had possibilities of moving that there were, there were rumors of them moving to Toronto and moving to different places as well. And the, when you talk about a team that had like unsung heroes in the early, you know, late seventies and the early 1980s, the Ted Stepien years, uh, world be free, almost single-handedly kept that team here. So if it wasn't for world be free, you're not looking at a, a LeBron James, a championship on June 19th, 2016. You're not seeing any of the, any of those classic names of the Kyrie Irvings and, you know, the Mark prices of the world, if it wasn't for world be free and people wanting to go see him score 30, 35 points a game. And kind of, you see that with, with Gaylord Perry, that he was one of the, those unsung heroes to keep this team in town and probably should be honored as such. Well, Gaylord was a huge part of that. And I'm glad you mentioned free because free did exactly that. They came just to watch him score. Then that team jailed under George Carl. They made the playoffs, but free was a huge part of that. And the guns taking over as well, but free, free was an unforgotten guy, but you know, for Gaylord, he comes and wins a Cy Young his first year in Cleveland in 72 and he wins 24 games. And he was, then I believe he was 19 and 19 in 73. And in 74, they bring his brother Jim in with him. But when you, every four days you knew Gaylord was there, you thought, we got a real good chance to win. If we're on a losing streak, he's going to stop it. If we're winning, he's going to keep it going. They played a Friday night game with Boston in June. Awful night. Kind of like the last couple of nights, but it was cold. 
They waited 90 minutes to start. They had 33,000 still there. And they beat Boston on a hit in the ninth. Lee Ron Lee broke Carlton Fisk's leg at the plate to end the game sliding home. But Gaylord goes the distance for his 14th straight win in late June. And 33,000 on a rainy night in Cleveland, That's that tells you that baseball was still alive in what I used to, I still love to call it the best location in the nation. That was a phrase in the 50s and 60s. And they proved that again that summer. It really, it's amazing that 1974 team that just, it, again, you look at the record, but the record doesn't tell the story, which is what you mentioned in Rally Round Cleveland. You can uh, purchase it now, and it's a great book. I've gotten it for relatives and everybody. And, you know, the, it was some of those names that I had mentioned that were that were just classic names. But I, 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 I got to get to the story here. I got to get to 10 Cent Beer Night, uh, which wasn't the people should know that was not the first 10 cent beer night and it was not going to be the only 10 cent beer night they were going to have at the old stadium and it happened this day this day that i'm recording it june 4th of 1974 the texas rangers were in town billy martin was the manager but talk about talk about like the overview of the game and what led up to it because it was already a you know, a, a tenuous game at that point, too, just going in. There was already some kind of um, – there was a little bit of a back and forth that happened, I believe, what, like the, the week before. You can find the video on YouTube of what really led to the whole mess. They were in Texas week before, and and ironically, it was 10 sitting beer night in Texas that night. <laughs> and in the eighth inning, Lenny Randall bunts – down the first baseline as Milt Wilcox grabbed the ball on the tag Randall. He elbowed just through a vicious elbow on the Wilcox and pretty much knocked him out, knocked him down, running down the baseline for no reason. Indian catcher John Ellis, who was pure Cleveland, tough Husky guy, runs out, tackles Randall, bench is empty. Bell, Buddy Bell tackles Martin. Fergie Jenkins takes on Aspermani from behind. They're dumping beer on Dave Duncan. And it was a nasty scene to close out that series. That, I believe it was on a Wednesday or Thursday night. They're coming home. And who better to fuel people up than the great Pete Franklin on, at that point, 3WE? 1,100, 50,000 watts, 38 states and half of Canada. Everybody listened to Pete Franklin before Indian games, after Indians games, Cavs games, whatever. If you were a baseball guy, you turned in Pete. And Pete, for that Thursday and Friday and that Monday, he drummed up that game. We got to get him back. Billy's coming to our town. Of course, Billy Martin made a statement after the game. They go, hey, Billy, you're going back to Cleveland next week on beer night. He goes, I don't worry about it. Nobody goes anyway. Well, that just fueled him even more. (laughs) Pete went crazy. Who can who is he to talk about our town like that? Let's show these Rangers who we are. Everybody come out. I was still amazed that it was a beautiful, gorgeous night. 80 degrees, nothing but sunshine. They do 25,000. What would have happened? They would have drawn 40,000 that night or 45,000. Could have I mean could have could have easily happened. 
Well, well let, let me ask before you go on, because if it's 10 cent beer night, like, for example, it, nowadays, where if you have a bar that says, hey, we've got dollar draft night or, or you know, dollar well drinks, uh, you, you know, you need to call the fire marshal at a lot of places. 25000 for a team on June 4th. I, I'm surprised there wasn't a little bit more. Was it just because it was a weekday or what, what was the case? I think a weekday school was not out yet totally. For kids, I believe school ended that Friday, so it wasn't out yet. And I, you know, I was stunned that it was only twenty-five thousand, because they were a decent club and they were they they had won the consecutive games. I, I think they were twenty-four and twenty-five at that point. They hadn't taken off in June yet, but still was the Rangers coming in beer night down there, beer night here. I was surprised that it was only twenty-five, but really, thank heavens it was. Yeah, if they boy, if they filled up that stadium, and oh. oh goodness gracious, and I mean there were familiar names that you were seeing out there, like uh, uh, there was was it Jeff Burrows was was playing. Yep. You had uh, uh, Mike Hargrove was the Rangers first, not the Indians, but the Rangers first baseman, and uh, it just leading up to it, and yeah, Fergie Jenkins was the pitcher in that game, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, um, they hit line drives twice back at Fergie, and the crowd was cheering like a football game, hit him again, hit him again harder. I was stunned. I mean, they were already pretty juiced up at that point. Um, three, two beers, a limit of six a person, and they sold them behind the outfield fence. You can walk down the runways on either side of the bleachers to get your six. And the lines were filled all night long behind the bleachers packed. You know, that was the that was there was the smell of marijuana in the air. You combine that with getting as many beers as you want. The combination was there. Um, I talked to Grover for the book and he was great. Um, he 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 never felt the hostile, the hostile things until the ninth inning. And then and then he said he was a little bit scared, but not until the ninth. But during the game, all kinds of crazy things would happen. Um. Tom Grieve of the Rangers, homers, and the big heavy set woman comes out, dances on top of the dugout. She bears her breast to the whole crowd. They try to kiss Nestor, shout out the umpire. They race out to Grieve at second base to try to see him. A naked man runs out with a baseball. It was just slides into second base. Things I'm thinking, this is not normal. This is this is not baseball. Oh, now where now your perspective because you're at this game, you're 19 years old. Where are you sitting? Like where are you seeing all of this? At the spot it happened in right field in General Mission in section 7 which was a great seat for $2.50 because you could sit anywhere you wanted. So you got there early. You were right where the Rangers bullpen. And right where it happened with Jeff Burrows in the ninth inning. So leading up to everything, so you yeah you have the the Tom Grieve home run and there I'm assuming this is right around the is this the Ray Stevens era of the streak? Oh yes, <laughs> without a question. The guy jumps out of the stands, racing toward the outfield fence. His clothes are under his arm. He's just butt naked, and he leaps in the fence and can't get over, and they drag him off over the crowd <laughs> cheering. I'm thinking, oh, you know, you're thinking, what what could happen next? Well, what what did happen next for for people that because they hear about ten cent beer night and a riot, but what you know, everything that led up to it uh, in that game, as you mentioned. But 
when we get to the night. I mean, the game's almost over at this point. However, the game is probably what about two something hours old. Did they allow? Did they allow the drinking before the game too? Like, could you get there at yeah. like five or six and already just like as soon as you get you, you get your ticket punched or you go through the turnstile and just you know get, you grab your three two beer? I believe in those days the gates opened ninety minutes before then. I'm not sure if they sold beer before the game out there or not. I'm sure they probably had it there, so I'm sure they probably did. So they were pretty juiced up by the time, for sure, when the ninth came around. Um, thing is, they were down five to one. Folks were still there. You know, they they were throwing tennis balls on the field. But one thing I found out later as well from Joe Tate that the Cleveland police, there was only like 25 cops there for the game. And the guys at the station house were listening to the ball game and hearing Joe and Herb. They brought Herb on the PA trying to calm the crowd down in the seventh inning didn't help. And they were going, we better get some more guys down there. If that would not have happened, that helped save it as well. More cops came down in the eighth inning while the Cleveland upper echelon brass, they bolted in the sixth inning. They got out of there. They left. They could see it coming. They skedaddled. When ninth inning comes, they're down 5-1. It begins to happen. They get a couple runs. Then Lowenstein hits a sack fly. Ed Crosby scores. They tie the game at five. And a fan runs up to Jeff Burroughs in right field and tries to grab his hat. Well, Burroughs is kind of straddled and didn't seem at first he thought the guy was trying to punch him and he just turns and trips and then just slugs the guy down. And then Billy Martin goes, then Billy yells, Hey guys, let's go get them. So they come storming from the Ranger dug out at third base. As Monty looks at our guys and says, Hey, Hey, we, we have to go help them. So they come out and it broke loose everywhere. A knife lands behind the leg of Nestor Shalak, the home plate umpire, Tom Hilgendorf, an Indian reliever, catches a chip to the head and took about 20 minutes. They finally announced the game is forfeited. They clear it. Fans still hanging around, but I was on crutches. I had broken my foot playing basketball. They tried to take my crutches <laughs> to use as weapons. I had to fight them off to keep them. You had to use your own crutches to fight them off it, from it stealing your so crutches. Unruly. It was so unruly. <laughs> but if there had been a larger crowd, I really think so, so, someone would have gotten killed that night had there been a, big, a bigger crowd. I think I heard Mike Hargrove say something like he, there was like a bottle of Thunderbird. It was like a whole jug of it just like came out. And I don't know where they threw it from. I'm assuming in the first base side, but that had to have been a real, real hurl that they'd have to throw it to come close to him at first base. Of course, Lee McPhail yells after that, no more beer nights. And they were scheduled the next night in Milwaukee. <laughs> and of course, they all happened. And the other ones came in Cleveland with no issues. You know, they, they had a nickel beer night in 71 in Cleveland, a nickel beer day, I believe it was. No problems. It was just all the combinations just exploded in a great scenario for one night, which put a real black eye. They tried to really blame it afterwards on Joe Tate. 
they pulled Joe in in front of the brass and Nick Maletti goes, he's not the reason this happened. And he got Joe out of there, but they were trying to blame Tate. It was just it, crazy from the start, but they weren't prepared enough for it. And they, and they knew that later. Well, they weren't prepared. and, and the amount of like Cleveland has a history of, uh, of alcohol at, at sporting events, including Bottle Gate, which happened. Oh, I was there for that too. Uh, <laughs> well, wait, well, did you? Well, actually, you know, since you mentioned that, since you were at Bottle Gate, were you were you in the crowd as a fan, or were you in the press box? In the crowd. Okay, all so you- so were you getting flashbacks to Ten Cent Beer Night when you started seeing all these uh, plastic? Remember when uh, Carmen Policy? Ah, oh, those plastic bottles don't pack much of a wallop. Yeah. <laughs> First words out of my mouth. This is beer night all over again. This has to stop right now. And that would happen at the stadium a little bit at times, coming from the bleachers. But then it would cease. It was dog bones and chains. and But they did throw some bottles out at times that they would sneak in. But nothing like the bottle gate was just, here we go again. And But luckily they got it in hand quick enough. My father was a Cleveland police officer, and not at not at Ten Cent Beer Night, but during the Bottle Gate. But he wasn't working that day, so I guess, according to the story, he told me that out of the eight home games, because in those days the Browns weren't playing too many more than eight home games, um, that they would basically he would be scheduled to work six of them, and one of them was that game against the Jaguars where they did not where he wasn't working. So I don't know where my dad was that day. I just remember I was at home watching it by myself, going. I uh, thank God dad's not working with this one because my God, <laughs> but I mean, but you think about it because even though it was scary because people were filling those bottles, whether they filled them with water, urine, uh, whatever beer was left or, you know, God forbid any other bodily fluids they were throwing. Yeah. It was pretty scary for a lot of people, but when you have 10 cent beer night where you're talking about an era where the cameras are not really on the field. Like, you might have a couple of cameras, and if the game's even televised anyways, and there's a lot of stuff that you're probably able to get away with. I'm sure there's a lot of public urination that was going on that can't get away with nowadays. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff that if they did a 10-cent beer night, let's say, tomorrow— you're not going to have the same, you might have some similar results, but you're not going to have the same results of just physical violence like that. At least I don't think so because everything's going to be caught on camera. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, You know, there was, that game was not televised in Cleveland that night. I don't believe it was in Texas or, or you would still have footage somewhere. There's not much footage of that night, which is really unfortunate. Um, Because normally the three stations at that time, three, five or eight, they get down there in the eighth or seventh inning if something's going on and there's footage, but there's not much footage from that night. Um, a lot of pictures, but not enough footage. Yeah. There's a story. I think Bob Dyer talked about it at the old Cleveland arena that the Cavs, of course, in those days were getting blown out basically every night. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I believe, was at the free throw line and he's getting booed and he just drops the basketball, puts both middle fingers up and then, goes to shoot the free throw imagine somebody like lebron or james harden doing that nowadays so there are a lot more you can get away with in the in the pre uh well i mean heck in those days the nba wasn't even shown live in a lot of times it was taped delayed yeah. after the evening news exactly um so, so, such a different time then for all of this and 
you know, it's it's. I wish that we could we could get back and have a ten cent beer night where people could maybe draw some more fans in there. They they won't even do bat day anymore now because nope. they're scared of violence with bats, which I think is crazy. I I think you could do it, but they won't touch it. Now now here's the big question: How many beers did you drink that night? Zero. <laughs> Real, I was be- never a beer guy. Did not have one at all. Really? I was a ball game. <laughs> now that's actually kind of memorable because, uh, like, there are there are stories where I believe uh, I, I heard Tim Russert, who was going to John Carroll. I think he was a grad student at John Carroll at the time, and they, he said he was at the game and they asked him how many beers did he drink, and he says I came into the park with two dollars. You do the math. <laughs> that's all it took. Boy, and you 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 think about that. That that's. 20 beers for a young guy and that's and, and they wonder why it was it's crazy now when they had the next ones they give you a voucher you can only have so many yeah yeah that's they, or they give you tickets where whether you're being generous of putting the ticket in the in the pitcher to say that you're having that many beers but they got to do it for liability reasons and well and you know it's funny because last night i was watching it was i was just bored and i was scrolling through on hbo max and i found the Bee Gees documentary and I'm watching this because, you know, it's they're, they're the Bee Gees, they're a popular group. And realizing how much Disco Demolition Night just did oh. uh, damage to the entire industry of disco that was, at the time, it was everywhere. It was exploding, but it was also very commercialized. It was on TV, and they were making parodies and Disco Duck and everything. Uh, and Steve Dahl in Chicago on The Loop had the Disco Demolition Night and staged it for the, the sec- before the second game of a doubleheader between, I think it was the Tigers and White Sox. And, yeah, you had Harry Carey and Jimmy Pierce all up in the booth basically calling the, the contest that was happening. But something like that where in the 1970s it was not uncommon for that to happen, where you were seeing people run on the field. There was Morgana, the kissing bandit, would be kissing George Brett or Cal Ripken or, or whomever. And uh, you'd have streakers, whether it was male or female, mainly male. Uh, it, it just it was a wild time in sports. And I think even the same year in 74 was the same year that the, 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 the two guys, the father and son, went to Dodger Stadium to light the flag on fire. And Rick Monday ripped the flag out. Yes. So that was a wild time to be a sports fan and probably even wilder to be somebody involved with the sports franchise. In those days, I mean, it was much. It was just a free period where people did what they wanted, and normally you they would look the other way sometimes, unless it was something that was really dangerous. And that's why I think it continued to happen. When the streak thing began, it just it happened everywhere. No city was immune to that. And yeah, it was just now nah, they'd laugh. It was done. It wouldn't happen again, and they would just move on. And different time. Um, it, it it was much more relaxed. I can tell you that it was it was more relaxed time than it is now. Do you think that was because of the era you're talking about, right around the end of the Vietnam War, that people are experimenting with different substances and and the availability of of beer to you know people between 18 and 21 at that time, or is this a collection of all of the above? I mean, it, I mean, this is definitely your era. I think it's everything. Um, you know, there. You know, you get the war finally ends. You're young people. Now everybody's home. Everybody's here. You're all going to college. It's it's something new. You're away from this. It's it's yeah. It's I think it's a big combination of everything you mentioned all played into one. And it, it was. I mean, I wasn't a drug guy, and it, but 
it was it was still a great time for me. I loved college, and it was great. It was it was definitely an interesting era, and the nineteen seventy four team that uh, kind of. Yeah, when you think of the 74 team, it's it's what we've been talking about with the 10-cent the beer night, but the team still is competitive through the All-Star break, but then they begin to fade in September. And from what I read in your book, that it, Frank Robinson, even though as much as he was a the guy that you were first black manager and he's a longtime 20-year veteran in the league that he's going to come to help with stability instead it's anything but and he butts heads with Gaylord Perry and it just things really start to unravel and it kind of the season didn't go the way I think a lot of people expected that they saw in the first two three months well they almost came to blows um on an off day Gaylord came into the and spoke to the Akron Press Club which was things that never happened now and they ask him about Frank, and he makes that statement. I want. They tell me they have no money around here. I've been pitching in front of crowds of thirty and forty thousand. All I know is next year, I want one more dollar than Frank Robinson. Major mistake. It becomes headlines. The PD picks it up. The press picks it up. Of course, it's in the Beacon. And the next night, Frank's at his locker and. Gaylord come or Gaylord's in his locker and Frank walks in because hey goes I hope you get all the money you want but if you ever mention my name again in money situations and the two rows they were coming together they had to separate them and they realized at that point for the first time I think that it became plain that there was a black white issue and Frank could see it mm. the white guys are on one side of the dugout the black guys on the other side of the dugout and they thought, yeah, we got problems, even though they were still hanging around in the race. And Gaylor knew he was done then. The two shook hands. They supposedly settled it then. And Frank kept denying that he was brought in to be the manager. And he came to Cleveland for his statue unveiling. He told the same story he told in 1974 and 75. I came here as a player to help Cleveland win the pennant. And I, and I honestly believe that. He never varied from that story. He, he told it the same then as he would tell it before he passed. And But as soon as the season ended, in fact, a week before it, a week before it ends, Kenny knew he was gone. And Asper Monty did a great job of that club and would not, he wanted, he kept pressuring them. Am I coming back? Am I coming back? And they would not give him, they finally told him no. Mm. He tells the team they finished the season on a Sunday in Boston and Robbie's the manager two days later. And the club never gelled under Frank. They never played as well. They traded Gaylord. They traded Jim Perry. They traded John Ellis. The backbone, the backbone guys were all sent packing, and they never had that excitement that that '74 team had. Now they still drew because of '74, which saved it, because they drew over a million a couple of times after that, and over 900,000, which which really put them on a good course again. But they never gelled like they had throughout a season as they had in '74. Not even close. Yeah, and people, when you kind of look back at the years of Frank Robinson as a manager, I, ew, boy, I mean, he had he had a decent year in '82 with San Francisco, but 
overall as a manager, not very good. And it, it took him a little bit, probably up until he ended up going to Baltimore to, for yeah. them to kind of start to gel. But even, even still to, to that, I think they expected a lot more out of Frank to be a, to be a manager. And especially with the team that you had a lot of young guys with that uh, Indians team. It was a nice mix of, of young and old at that time. And you young needed, what, what's that? The young guys loved him. Yeah. Well, but the problem is they may not have been exactly the right young guys to carry the team going forward because kind of like what you saw in 86 where Sports Illustrated predicted the 87 Indians <laughs> were going to win the World Series and you there were these expectations that were met was it be, did in by 75 did the team fold uh pretty quick is it because of those expectations or was the Kind of the the focus was around the fact that oh, there's the first black manager and it's Frank Robinson and this and that. Did that kind of overshadow what the team could have been that season? It was Frank drew traffic everywhere he went. It was always a press conference every city he would go to, and they were a 500 club. They'd go under five games, they'd win three or four in a row, get close to 500 again. They were they were not awful by any means, but they were never in the race. Um, he was he was really bringing in guys like Manning and Kuyper and Eckersley and Jim Kern. And there was a pretty good nucleus there. But the one thing that for some reason I'll never be able to figure out was Charlie Spikes, we thought, was about to be a star. He had a pretty good season in 74. He had 24 homers, drove in 78 runs. I think he hit 282, 274, something like that. And under Frank, I think, Frank has so much pressure on Charlie where he made Charlie think, Hey, look what I did. Why can't you do that? And Charlie couldn't. Now Hendrick thrived under Robbie, but spikes just drifted away and was never the same player. He was her best player offensively for two years. And Frank came and you thought he's going to get spikes over the hump. The Boogaloosa bomber will really, thrive under Robinson and he never did but the other young guys did and we could I think Frank thought the game should come for all those guys like it did for him and as you know it's just not that easier or we would all do it yeah well I've noticed that when you see a lot of managers and coaches and instructors and basically any sport that were hall of famers that there are very few that were able to cross over and become good coaches where uh, you, Ted Williams was one good example. Uh, Eddie Murray as a hitting instructor. I mean, you want to talk about guy who's steady Eddie, very consistent, terrible hitting coach. And what they do is they basically go, well, you see what I did, do that. And because Frank did that for a long time, I think a lot of people looked at that and said, oh, okay, just because you can do that doesn't mean the rest of us can follow yeah. suit and, and all become the next Frank Robinson. You know, they really thought that they had a different version of Boudreaux, a great player who transferred as a manager, but he was only 24 when he became their manager. But he was a he was a winning manager of the Indians big time. But they thought, oh, maybe Frank can give us that same magic. It's the homer opening day. You're thinking, holy smokes, what a Cinderella thing. But it never happened. And I, I, I was always stunned that they fired Frank in the middle of what was a nine-game winning streak. Yeah. That's when he was fired for Jeff Torborg. And I think, didn't Frank go through a 20-game losing skid in Baltimore? Yes, yeah. To start the season, they yeah, I think they lost like 21 in a row. 
And then they bounced back, had a pretty good year. The rest, the rest of it, well, in 89, I think he was manager of the year because yeah. they really bounced back uh, with that team. And they liked him in Montreal, or they liked him when they moved to Washington for a while, when they came out of Montreal, when he took that club. But, it, and, and he mellowed a lot. But they, you know, Phil Seggy wanted him to play every day. And he goes, I can't play every day. He goes, I got to try to, I'm a first year manager. Plus he had the aches and pains of a chronic shoulder then as well. But Seggy wanted his bat in the lineup every day. Frank goes, I can't do that right now and manage his club and, and have us win. Yeah. It, uh, it's, it's sad, but what, but for, I think for a lot of fans and not just Indians fans, but I think for sports fans in general, that, and you've mentioned it before about how the Cleveland Browns, they moved. No one would have thought the Cleveland Browns of all teams would move or the Houston Oilers or some of these classic oh, franchises. Yeah. So it's a great book for people who think, especially nowadays, that think that, oh, my team's been here since insert year. It could be the 20s. It could be the last, you know, since the 70s. Your team can move. There's a possibility that it, it, could ha- it can happen, and whether it moves to a different market or even possibility of just uh, – you know, disillusion at that point. So it's a great book to look at and say, hey, just because you think that your team's going to be around here forever, it's not always going to be the case. And for a team that's the 1974 Cleveland Indians, a team that, again, didn't finish above 500, it was definitely a great uh, uh, barometer to see where a team was going to be. And that excitement that you chronicle in this book is just, it, it was able to get enough people into the ballpark for them to keep it going and let into what you saw, obviously, out of the 90s in the last few years with Terry Francona. Well, you know, you think about, you talk about, you never think your team can move, but think about these franchises the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York Giants, the Baltimore Colts. Cleveland Browns, who all drew, but if it can happen to franchises like that, it can happen anywhere at any time if you're not really watching what goes on in your city. And you know, really, I think it's it's a privilege to have a major league franchise in your town. And not that they deserve your money, but if you want them, Cleveland's TV ratings have always been in the top three in Major League Baseball the last four or five years, that's got to translate to turnstiles, I would think, at some point. And maybe the reopening will help that. I hope it does. But, you know, that team, a soft spot in my heart because it was my first, really first winner. And it was do or die. If you weren't there, I was either watching or listening to Joe and Herb. And I remember that year vividly. It was so much fun to go up there. You, know, you can go up there for a weekend and sit in the bleachers and spend $10. Yeah. We normally sat in the GA seats for $250. You could take in your own food. So you could go up there. You could park for $0.50 cents in your muni lot then. You could spend almost no money and go watch Major League Baseball. What a treat. There, there were and there were great times and you know it's it's interesting you say that about teams leaving and, and and what teams stay. I mean you think about Green Bay, not Milwaukee, but Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is like 
basically the size of like Massillon, Ohio, yeah, is able to keep a professional and not just a professional sports team, but a consistent winning professional sports team in such a small town. I mean, there were towns like Johnstown and Portsmouth that had uh, you had the Fort Wayne Zollner Pistons that had to move to Detroit. So you have these smaller towns that did have professional sports at one time, but had since moved the Akron pros and a a lot of these, whether in any sport that had moved and became a much bigger franchise. I mean, Portsmouth moved and they became the, uh, uh, I believe they're the Detroit lions, right? Or is it the, yeah, yeah, I believe so. I believe they moved to Detroit and became the lions. And it's interesting how a town like Cleveland and, and Northeast Ohio, which by the basically by the day is losing population. I mean, since I've been working in the Akron market, we've lost about six to seven places in the radio market. And I believe uh, my wife works in TV and she was telling me we're going to lose a a number in the TV market as well. And that encompasses Cleveland, Akron, Canton, Medina, and, and that whole area. So a, a, a town like Cleveland is rapidly losing population, yet somehow, someway, we were still able to keep three professional sports teams, whereas there are other towns that have become, you know, like Nashville has one, well, has two teams, technically, because thinking of hockey, but some of these uh, these towns that are really exploding with population either don't have a team or have maybe one or two pro teams. Well, you know, it's amazing when... There's a book called The Summer of Shadows, and it was written about 1954, and it combines the pennant race of 54 with the Sam Shepard murder case. Mm. It's a great book by Jonathan Knight, and Cleveland at that point was a top five city population-wise in the country. Everyone was coming to Cleveland. It was called the best location in the nation. Business boomed with everything in Cleveland. And yet the Indians had gone through four consecutive years of 90 wins or more. Didn't want to pen until 54, but attendance was beginning to drop because they were tired of watching them lose to the Yankees and finish in second place. And they finished in second place 50, 51, 52, 53, 55, 56. Well, he's in second place winning 90 games. But even in 54, attendance was starting to dwindle. And after 54, the city's population began to slowly decline as well. As that declined, baseball declined. Hank Greenberg wanted to move the club in 57 and 58. And they only drew 663 in 58. And Greenberg wanted to move the club to Minneapolis. Mm. And he was bought out and they kept him. But attendance in the the city population still kept declining through that period. The Browns outdrew them in 63 and 64. How could the Browns outdraw them playing at that point seven home games? Seven home games compared to 80. And they outdrew them in back-to-back years. But the city's population, they they weren't supporting but one team then. Hockey drew very well. Then with the Barons, 
And but still, you know, you, you talk about the populations and the size of cities and you're right about the population here. It's never been the same in Akron since all the rubber companies left. It's never been the same since they all bolted. And it's a shame, but, you know, hopefully. Hopefully people have that interest to want to get back up there. And I think they'll sign the lease and end the talk for at least another 25 years or however long the lease. I hope it's 25 years. Yeah, but take care of my life, I think. <laughs> 25 years, just make sure they're here. Because I want to have that satisfaction of one time. When the Cavaliers won the NBA title, I didn't feel it. I was happy. Um, I was a huge Cavs fan in the 70s, Miracle Richfield years, the Mark Price years. I was able to broadcast LeBron's games on pay-per-view as a senior so I could see it coming, but I never felt the excitement when they won it as I should have. Being another kid from Akron who grew up idolizing and watching those teams, I want to see the Indians do it one time. So, Mr. Dolan, one time, please. <laughs> uh, you know, the Browns was nine years old. The game was blacked out. We listened to it. Watched the game the next night on Channel 8. Because Art would not show that game live. Hmm. And you want to I, I, I was there for the drive. I will swear to my dying day, the kick was no good. Rich Carlos. I sat, I sat in section 21 right behind home plate. And the three sections surrounding me, we all rose at the same time when the kick was made because we thought it was no good. Everyone rose because we thought he missed it. <laughs> and you watch the film, and I still swear he missed it. Yeah, I, it's it's it. it's close, but yeah, I I think I agree with that too, especially with the way the wind was blowing. It, it yeah, and I kind of felt the same way with the Cavs championship. Was it was that it was that feeling where when I was younger, it was hey, you know. You know, I can't wait for a championship. I don't care which team it is. I just want to see it. And then as I got older, I'm like, it's going to mean so much more if the if the Browns or the or the Indians are able to win the championship. The Cavaliers, especially with the way they did it, and you know, my wife gives me crap for this because actually our anniversary is the anniversary of the championship, so June 19th. Oh and but no, we didn't get married that day. We got married uh, the four-year anniversary of it. So it was. So every time I say it, I'm like, look, I look at the way that Cavaliers team was was kind of like the Wayne Huizenga Florida Marlins of the '90s. Was they won that World Series where they just bought their team? There was only a couple of the guys that they had, like Jeff Conine or even Gary Sheffield, who they traded for, were on the team for a couple of years. Everybody was they brought them in, and then they had a fire sale immediately right after. So the Cavs championship kind of felt kind of cheap to me because it all had to deal with. Will LeBron, for his legacy's sake, come back to Cleveland? And if he does, then everybody's going to start ring chasing like Kevin Love, like, uh, you know, just go through the list. And it basically it was, oh, so they had Tristan Thompson and Kyrie Irving were the only couple of guys that they drafted, and the rest of it just started, just came on the team to chase rings here. So it felt cheapened to me. I mean, I, I was happy that night, but I got over it quicker than I would if the Browns or Indians would win. Oh, same thing. Um you know, I sat there that night with my Cavs media guys from the 70s. I was kind of looking at them during the game. And I thought, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. So I, I was kind of diverting my attention. But, you know, then I enjoy watching the game more now than I did then, I think. 
But I, I, I never felt the same about it. Um, I'm, I'm unlike you. If the Indians and Browns can do this, it would mean much more than it did that night. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Last two things I'll ask you. They're quick things. First of all, where can we find the book? And second of all, uh, the possibility of a name change for the Indians. Well, there will be a name change. There were a bunch of them that came out saying the Spiders, the Guardians, the Crusaders, the Avengers, the Captains. Some of these were the names that were brought up. What do you think is the closest one that you that that if you were to put any money down, any you know monopoly money down, what would you say would be the next name of the team? I'm afraid it's going to be Spiders. I'm not a Spiders guy. I'm not a Guardians guy. But I'm afraid it's going to be one of those two. I hope it's not rockers. Um, you know, let the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame be what they are. We had a women's basketball team called the Rockers. Let them stay where they're at. Um, I, 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 I liked the Cleveland Naps, which they were at one time, or even the Cleveland Blues, but they don't seem to be jumping up on the list. Or I even thought there's Cleveland Cyclones for Cy Young. Hmm. But, that, but that never caught much of a wind either. But um, from what I heard, the captains could be one of those dark horse candidates because they can keep the block C for captains or Cleveland. They can basically keep the uniforms. They just make things a little bit more nautical around the ballpark. So, you know, the right field corner can be the, you know, the you know, the poop deck or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. It's it just one of those, well, probably for more ways than one, depending on if they have a 10 cent beer night, but what is, does Lake County become the Indians then? Well, I, I thought this was, I brought this up on the air this morning was if they became the captains, Lake County could become the spiders and they test the waters with that name to see what marketing would be because people, I think they're looking at it as far as, it, the spiders is kind of, even though the marketing kind of writes itself and just like with the rubber ducks, it took for me personally, it took a little bit to get used to the rubber ducks name. And now we just say it anyways, and it, it's nothing. And in fact, I like it better than the arrows. Um, but I, I think with the spiders, I think there's a little bit more of a risk than if they became the captains, which have been a minor league team in the area for almost 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, I, I would not want to see the captains. I, I just that that that's Lake County. Leave Lake County alone. Do something original. If it's Spiders, at least it's something we had before, way back when they were a, a losing franchise when they were the Spiders. But you know, somehow be original. And I think they'll do it right. I think they know they have to do it right because this is important to people. It's maybe it shouldn't be as much as it is, but it's a lot of us. It's our childhood. Um, they want something they can identify with. And I think they'll do a good job. And I think they'll pick the right name. At least I hope I'm right. Well, it's it's not as easy as uh, just saying, hey, uh, we're going to be the the spiders this time. Okay, perfect. We got a graphic designer in mind. Boom. And then all of a sudden, they, it's a lot that goes into that. Because if they're yeah. the spiders, they have to contact the University of Richmond to get copyright and permission and everything. And if there are other teams, they have to get permission from them as well. So you're either going to have to find a team that might not have a, a name or they got to go through the process. I mean, how many Tigers and Bears and whatever are out there that if a team decided to change that, they have to go through that copyright motion there? Let me ask you this. I, I heard one person saying, 
what's our mascot going to be? Do we have to have a mascot? Do do the Yankees have a mascot? I don't think they do. No, not at all. No, we, Aaron, we, Aaron Judge is their mascot. We don't need a mascot. Have your characters keep slider, but you don't need something. We don't need a mascot. That's, you know, the Browns have the brownie, and they had that head on him sometimes, which, I mean, I, I love the brownie. But we don't need a brownie mascot like they have out there. I just, no mascot, just find a name, find a good way to illustrate it, and let's go. But don't get carried away. And I, I mean, it's all, you know, it's it's just so money-driven, which it has to be. But do the right thing. However you do it, do the right thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, so Rally Around Cleveland, the book on the 1974 Cleveland Indians Jim by Jim Clark. Jim, where can we find this book? Copies are dwindling. Um, it's there's still some on Amazon, and that's where it's at. It's 1995. Um, it's still there. I've I've kept a box hidden in case I need to put them out there. Um, it you know for a self-published book, I've been pretty happy with it. People still seem to buy it, and it's something that I never thought I would do. I'm glad I did. It was a good period in my life. Um, I tie my father into it a lot, who was a huge baseball guy. A lot of family stuff gets involved with the baseball season. And people tell me they like they that they think it's a good read, and that's fine with me. Well, in three years, it'll be the 50th anniversary, so we might have to get a couple of reprintings and reissuings. Wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on here. I can't wait to post this and get some of the feedback. We could maybe sell out the rest of your books. And uh, good luck and, uh, you know, and go Ducks going forward, too. Thanks for having me. I had a great time.